All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. It is Thursday. We're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. We are live. This is like our second live here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a guest that uh, I've been uh, chatting with and texting for about a month now. So excited to have our guest. We've been pumping it on the podcast. Give us the intro, Andrew. Let's go. Yes. Yeah, so being in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, we'll go ahead and start with the introduction. Don't need a long run. Everybody's going to prefer Gary Unger to speak here, which is who we have today. So Gary is the definition of old school hockey and terrorized NHL this talent for almost 20 years. He suited up for six different teams during his tenure in the NHL, was a seven-time NHL All-Star, served as a team captain for the St. Louis Blues, holds one of the longest Ironman records of 914 consecutive games played, and eventually finished his career with over 1,100 games played and recording over 800 points and 400 goals. His resume expands much farther than just his NHL career, as his playing career has taken him to other leagues, as well as his legendary 20-year coaching career um, throughout several different leagues as well. And if you're a Tulsa Oiler fan, then you definitely recognize his name. And if you don't, then maybe next time you go to a game, look up in the rafters and notice the retired jersey numbers, and then hit the Google engine and look up this guy. So without further ado, please welcome NHL legend today, Gary Unger. Gary, how are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Good, good. So Gary, uh, we just talked about, uh, we need to tell the story. So uh, I was actually uh, getting my car done when you called me, uh, Ian Kesserich, great guest that's been on our podcast, uh, got us in touch with each other. And uh, you gave me a call and you told me this great story about your journey from COVID-19 to today. And you've just, you've got to tell that story. Well, we have, we had a uh, hockey academy in Banff, Alberta. I don't know if you know where Banff is, but there's a place you need to look up and, and go to. It's the first national park in, in Canada. It's in the Canadian Rockies, uh, ski capital of the world, uh, snowboarding. Uh, all the people that work in the bars and restaurants and everything are all Australian and English uh, people. They come over for the ski season. And uh, we had this little academy and it was an international academy. So to recruit kids to come to the academy. We had a hockey school in Fusen, which is in Bavaria in Germany. Uh, we had a hockey school in Japan. There's a lot of Japanese people in Banff uh, doing the, the travel bit and, and it's an international high school. So not only the hockey part of, of coming to the Banff Hockey Academy, it was the Canadian experience of living in Canada in, in the winter time too, with the snow and the, and the skiing and all that stuff. So anyhow, uh, we were, we were in the, actually in the playoffs. We had three teams. We had a, a varsity team and a prep team and a girls team. And we had coaches for all those. I was the athletic director. Uh, I jumped on the ice and helped with practice and went behind the bench with all three teams. And then I would travel. We traveled all over Western Canada. So we traveled from Victoria, British Columbia, where we had to take the ferry across to get from Vancouver to get to, to, get to Victoria, uh, all the way out to Winnipeg. So all that was the winter travel. We went through the Canadian Rockies, a place called, and I drove the van. I was the bus driver. The bus driver. I was the bus driver. So, so, so uh, I had a 15 passenger van and my partner, Bill Doherty, who was from Montreal, uh, he drove the other van with, with the trailer on it and with all our hockey equipment. 
and we would go from Banff to Vancouver. There's only one ro one road. It's a it's a Trans Canada Highway, and you have to go through uh, Golden BC, Revelstoke, British Columbia, and then you hit uh, the Rogers Pass, and it goes straight up. and And there's so many avalanches. You're right. The mountains are right beside you. The snow is like 20 feet deep. Wow. And they've built tunnels because this road would have avalanches coming down on the road and then the road was shut. Nobody could get through. So there's eight tunnels that you have to go through. So we go back and forth through this thing, you know, eight, 10 times a year with all the different teams. Anyhow, we had just made a trip out to Penticton, British Columbia. That's what our, where our playoffs were. And we were playing, we played on a Tuesday night and went back to the hotel and we had a game, I think it was Wednesday morning and I went back to the hotel and I'm watching TV and that's when the NBA went down. And I said to myself, if the NBA is going down, that's big, you know, something really big is happening. Anyhow, we got up in the morning, went to the rink and it was closed. The rink was closed. Talked to the guy and said, this is what's happening everything's shutting down. We jumped in the vans, drove back to Banff. And I had all these kids from Italy, France, Germany, Japan, they needed to get home. Wow. So we spent the next week packing all these guys up and, and getting them to the airport. The airport from Calgary to Banff is, is about uh, 120 kilometers, which is uh, 90 miles, somewhere like that. So I, that's, again, I'm the driver. So I got this van and I'm wheeling guys back and forth and I'm at the airport and I'm looking around and, and my wife is in Phoenix. I have a home in Phoenix uh, and my youngest daughter stayed in Tulsa. When I coached in Tulsa, my youngest daughter loved it here and she stayed here. So anyhow, I've, I'm looking around at the airport and there's nobody there. So, but the planes are still going out. So I went up to the, I went up to the, uh, I think it was WestJet. And I said, are you still flying to Phoenix? He said, yeah, we got some flights going. I said, I need to book a flight because I, I think this thing's going to shut down. Anyhow, I got a flight, got the kids all out of town, got a flight and I went back to Phoenix. And when I got to Phoenix, everything was shut down there too. Churches, uh, you know, even my, my grandkids, I've got, I've got, uh, two daughters in Phoenix and they each have two kids and they wouldn't even let us, they didn't want us to get sick and they didn't want anybody. So people were, were not even having people over to their house. So here we're sitting in Phoenix, the pools were closed. <laughs> the only thing I could do is ride around on my motorcycle by myself with a mask on. <laughs> so we sat there for a while and, uh, and we said, well, why don't we go to Tulsa? Why don't we go visit? Uh, my daughter here is a single mom. She has three kids. Two of them are boys. One of them is just four. The other one was 10. And the other kid, the, the Jackson, is playing hockey. So I called Christy and I said, you know, what's going on there? And she said, well, the, the, they're, they're still playing hockey. So I said, okay, we'll come down for a couple weeks, a month, whatever. We went down. Uh, Ian and, and Derek Toninato and, yep. and uh, Clage Cable are two of the guys that I recruited to come into to Tulsa when I was coaching here. They're running the kids program and Jackson's playing with the kids program. So all of a sudden, 
I'm skating with the kids. You know, I'm helping out with the, they, they had their coaches all in place and I'm skating with the kids and just kind of helping out. And it's a little more normal in Tulsa. Yes. Things were, weren't shot right down. Yeah. No, they, I don't think they have a shut down too yeah, much. Completely. No. So, so we ended up, we were sleeping on, on the floor at my, my daughter's place in a blow up mattress. And, and I said, listen, if, if we're staying here any longer, we need to. So we ended up getting an apartment. And, uh, and, but when I left Canada, I left with a backpack. I had a backpack and I said to my, you know, it's going to be a couple of weeks, three weeks, and then I'll be back. In the meantime, the hockey school shut down. We had a house right beside the high school. They took all my stuff and they put it in the, in the hockey trailer, which is still sitting there in the hockey trailer. All my jerseys and sticks and skates and everything is there. All my clothes. <laughs> I just had a backpack. So, <laughs> so we came to Tulsa and we're going through this thing. We said, well, if we're going to stay and I'm going to help out, we need to probably get an apartment. So we got an apartment for the year and helped out with the kids team. Well, the, 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 there's a, a pretty good program here in Tulsa with these guys have done a really good job with the young kids here. And uh, Clage came to me and he said, listen, Daryl Danu, who was the coach of the uh, uh, high school team, he's not going to do it next year. And would you be interested in coaching the high school team next year, which is the, this past year? So now instead of coming to Tulsa for two weeks, we ended up staying all last year. And then we went back to Phoenix for the summertime. I haven't been even close to the border because there's way too much going on. And we decided to come back and, and coach the high school team. And then I just help out with Jackson's U10 team. And we had a great group of kids, great group of parents. Uh, two months ago, we won the high school championship yeah. with the Tulsa team. So it was a great experience for me as well. Uh, but that's how I ended up coming back to Tulsa because I, I really like Tulsa. Tulsa goes way back with me and we'll probably get into that in a little yeah. bit, but that's kind of my, my uh, COVID experience. <laughs> <laughs> I I had it once. Oh, you did. Yeah, I I was still in Phoenix, and my other little grandson was playing soccer, and I walked across the field. I went to to a game. You know, you're carrying your chair and yeah. across, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm so tired that I can hardly walk. Wow. I wasn't. I had nothing in my my nose or throat or I wasn't sick or anything like that. If I sat in a chair like this, I could sit for hours. But if I got up and walked to the door and you know what it was exactly like back about, oh, it was about 15 years ago, I ride dirt bikes, motorcycles and, and that stuff. When I was in the same little town in Penticton, again, where I'm always in the mountains doing something. We went on a motorcycle ride up the mountain. When I got to the top of the mountain, I got into a wreck. I, I flew up over a rock in the shade and the sun was right there. And I hit the ground and I punctured my lung and, and broke my ribs. So anyhow, that was exactly the same experience because if you got a punctured lung, if you're sitting in a chair, you can just kind of breathe. 
But if you walk to the door, you, you're going down on your knees. So it was kind of the same experience. Anyhow, uh, we got through all that and, and uh, you know, caught up with some of our friends in Tulsa. We, you know, the owner of the team from here before, Jeff Lund, and we had a, uh, Bruce Ewing was the pastor at our church and we did a chapel before the games. And so I've got quite a few friends in Tulsa and it was one of the favorite places. My wife was a personal trainer at four or five gyms here. Okay. Uh, there's another Canadian guy that lives in here, Michael Nelson, uh, who worked for uh, Bev, worked for him. His his dad was a CFL football player. So there's some connect Canadian connections uh, in Tulsa, but a, a lot of good friends. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up back in Tulsa. That's a great story. Yeah, very interesting. <laughs> and he still hasn't been back to get his stuff. Well, I was about to ask, you've never been back to go get I haven't. I, I just was on the phone yesterday trying to see what I could do to, because I got to drive all the way there or fly there and, and rent a car. The thing is, everything's gone up so expensive. Right. I, the last time I came to Tulsa in a, in a rent-a-van, I think I paid $800. Yeah, I called yesterday, it was like three grand to, to rent a van. So anyhow, I'm trying to figure out when I'm gonna work this in. Now I've got so busy doing the stuff with the kids and now a soccer season's on and, and the boys are playing soccer and all that stuff. So you still got a quarantine too if you cross that border. Yeah, right? yeah, it's a hassle. So I, I just didn't want to even. So I'm gonna, I'll get into the playing career. So 1967, Andrew, believe yes. I don't want to make Gary feel feel old, but right. you know he's a grandfather. Right. He feels right. old, right? Yeah. Well, age is a state of mind. Well, yes, there you go. Like so I just insulted Gary. Anyway, <laughs> 1967, crazy year for you. Yeah, well, that was my rookie year. And you know, so you uh, you're playing in London. You do a, a little bit of sit in Tulsa here, there. You keep, yeah. we'll talk about that. Uh, but since you're in London, your property of Toronto, I assume. Well, let me go back then. I'll, okay. I'll go back before, before that. There was no draft yeah, in the wondering. NHL then. I okay. I think the draft, I'm not exactly sure when the draft came in, but could have been around 70, 69, somewhere like that. I'm playing in Calgary. My dad was in the army. He lived in the army camp. Uh, I was playing for the junior A team in Calgary, the Calgary Buffaloes. What had happened there is the NHL must have sat down at a table just like this and said, okay, Montreal, you've got Quebec. Toronto, you've got Calgary. Uh, Rangers, you've got Northern Ontario. Whatever happened. Because I lived in Calgary, I belonged to the Toronto Maple Leafs. No draft, no nothing. So I had played that year in Calgary and I was, I was all, I've always been a goal scorer. So I was one of the top goal scorers and a guy came to a game, saw my dad in the stands and said, would Gary like to go try out for the Toronto Marlboros? At that time, the, the OHA, which is the Ontario junior hockey league and the Quebec major junior hockey league was the two major hockey leagues in, in Canada for junior. We had Saskatchewan junior hockey, Manitoba, Alberta, BC, but all the guys, Bobby Orr was playing in Oshawa. Uh, Derek Sanderson was playing in, in Niagara Falls. They were Boston, Boston Bruins farm clubs. Yeah. And uh, they, those were the kids that were going into the NHL. So we didn't know anything about, I didn't know anything about how good the hockey was there. I knew it was great because those, those leagues were good and the kids were going to the NHL from there, but I didn't know how we compared yeah. being out West. We only got one game a, a week, Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, 
and we watched Toronto or Montreal play a game. And that's all we ever saw of, of the NHL. We got books and cards and all that stuff. And we knew everybody that was playing, but I didn't know compared to the hockey in Ontario and Quebec, whether I could compete, you know, maybe, maybe we were just a different, a different brand. So anyhow, Toronto Marlboros was one of the top teams in Canada and Bob Davidson, the scout for the Toronto Maple Leafs, he went to my dad and said, would Gary like to try out for Toronto? And I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I, I jumped on a plane the next year, the next September and flew out to Toronto. There was probably 300 guys there trying out for one team that they had everybody signed for. So, and I'm, I, they could only allow, there was only allowed one guy from the West, Western Canada as a West to East transfer. So I had a pretty, for me to make that team was really tough. So every day the guy would come in, the, the uh, Jim Gregory was the general manager of the team and they'd come in, call kids in to, to talk to him. And they'd say to me, do you want to play for London? And I said, no. I said, I came out to make the best team in Canada and I'm not going to London. So that, this happened four times in a row. And, and I'm, I'm, now, I'm now skating with these guys and thinking, okay, I can, I can keep up. You know, I could, I chip in a couple goals here and, and uh, I'm thinking I can make this team. I'm as good as these guys that are playing. So the fourth day that they brought me in and said, okay. And they had a couple of other guys sitting in the corner. And one of them was a guy named Turk Broda. If you want to look that name up, he's a long time hall of fame goaltender that played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He was the coach in London. So I didn't know this at the time. And he's pumping these guys. He says, I want that guy. <laughs> so, so Jim Gregory says to me, okay, so what do you want to do? Same question. What do you want to do? You want to go to, what do you want to do? He said, you want to go to Tulsa? I mean, do you want to go to London or do you want to go home? Yeah. I said, well, I guess I'm going to London. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in London. But anyhow, that was a Toronto Maple Leaf Farm Club. Yeah. And uh, back then when there were six teams in the league, the American League was where all the older players went. Uh, Rochester Americans were the, were the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs Farm Club. Okay. Don Cherry was the captain of that team. Right. And there was a lot of old pros that played in Rochester. Uh, actually, my first roommate there was Al Arbor, who was my coach in, in St. Louis and the longtime Islanders yeah. uh, five four or five Stanley cup. Great guy. Anyhow, that's now I'm in the system. So I played in London at the end of the season. When we finished in London, they took me to Rochester for the playoffs. Then we, we, uh, then I signed a, a pro contract with the, with the Toronto Maple Leafs back then, what you did, it was a three-way contract. So you'd have $5,000 to play in Tulsa. Ten thousand dollars to play in in uh, American League, and fifteen thousand dollars to play in the NHL. That's it. That's it. That's it. I ten. I think it was ten. My first contract in the NHL. And you guys played with no helmets back then too, right? I've never wore a helmet. I've never wore a helmet. You have to get your never wore a 
teeth thing. My mom wouldn't go to the games because she was afraid I was going to lose my teeth. And I, and I never lost a tooth. They never lost one, right? <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, that's how that kind of happened. Take the second one, Andrew. Yeah, so, uh, you know, next few years, you tear it up in Detroit and everything. But I do want to talk about uh, um, your first year in the NHL that year, whether or not you're, you're Detroit Toronto. But did you have any good stories of you getting pranked as the, as the new guy? We've heard stories of them getting stuck with dinner bills but from all the vets and things like that. So a good story that you're able to well, share. Well, the, the stories that you hear nowadays are about cash. What you're talking about right. is about going right. to a going to a rookie meal and having to pay ten grand right. for three thousand shrimp cocktails and drinks and party and all that stuff. Again, with our contracts, that wasn't happening. <laughs> it was more, and it was it was what they call, and it was just a natural thing in in hockey. But if it happened today, we'd all be in prison. Like it yeah. was hazing. Right. You know, like school hazing, they right. used to have it for, for sororities and, and uh, fraternities and in high school and, so and in colleges. Did, did you get it twice? Once for Toronto, once for Detroit? Well, I would, what happened, I, I actually, I actually got it in London. Okay. I didn't have short hair. I had shorter hair, yeah. but I didn't like it. We called it a brush cut in Canada. It was called a, a crew cut, I think, in the States. So all athletes didn't have any hair. And I had a little bit of hair. And they took a pair of scissors. They sneaked up behind and they cut the whole front off my hair. So I had no choice. I had to shave it myself. So as it turned out in the NHL, what they used to do, uh, I played with a guy named Claude LaRose. When, when the NHL expanded to, to 12 teams, the older guys, guys like Gump Worsley and uh, John Beliveau and Rocket Richard and all those guys were still in the league when I came in as a rookie. I was with London and one of the guys on the Montreal Canadiens team was a guy named Claude LaRose that got traded to, to St. Louis, played on my line and we became good friends. Anyhow, the old guys didn't like to fly. Nobody liked to fly. So when there were six teams, Boston, New York, you know, you know, the, the, the Toronto, Montreal, they could take the train. So when they went on the train, they would get playing cards and drinking and doing stuff. And the thing with the rookies is, is they shaved them, shaved their heads and other places. So, so they're on the train and now it's four o'clock in the morning and it's Claude LaRose. They're, they're talking about getting Claude. He locked himself in, in the bathroom on the train and they, they got a bunch of newspapers and set them on fire and smoked them out <laughs> and shaved them. <laughs> so, and, and that was what happened to the rookies in, in the dressing room. You'd come into the dressing room and they'd have all this stuff set up. And, you know, I, I can't go into the details because it's, it's, it's pretty rank, <laughs> but uh, that was the, and I never got it. I, I kind of missed the, I w I was never got it in Toronto. And then by the time I got to Detroit, uh, I had played, 15 games with Detroit the year I got traded there. And all of a sudden I was a player 
and, and Gordy and Alex Delvecchio, Gordy Howe and Alex Delvecchio weren't into that kind of stuff. It was depends on your team. Yeah. And I made it through that. Yeah. When do you remember a moment when you know, you're, you're going from juniors, now you're playing with grown men, it's a job, they got families that you said, yeah, I've, I've made it and I can do this. Now, I, I looked up and, and I was able to find your first goal with Toronto. Yeah. Um, and But when was the moment that you just said, you know what, I'm here, I made it to the NHL, and you know what, I can do this, this is great. Well, let me tell you a lesson for anybody that's doing anything, playing drums, playing a guitar. Uh, it's not arriving it's how long you stay because there's a lot of guys that play have a great rookie year think that everything's great they quit doing the things that got them there working out in the summer and doing the stuff they go back the next year and all of a sudden a couple new rookies come in and they they're tuned and and you only last a couple of years so so what you need to get to is, is never get, never getting complacent, never taking for granted that I'm going to be here. The only reason I'm here is because I'm, I'm one of the best players on the team. And if I don't continue to be one of the best players on the team, it doesn't matter if your name is Gordy Howe or Bobby Hall or, or Sidney Crosby. If you don't continue to do that, somebody else is going to take your place. So, so where I got to, was when I got traded, when I got traded from Toronto, I didn't play much in Toronto. I served a couple penalties. I scored a goal. I had three guys had to get hurt before I got into the lineup. I, I went to the, the Toronto Maple Leaf coach, uh, Punch Imlac, when I was a kid, when I was playing with the Leafs. And I said to him, I want to go down to Tulsa to play because I want to play hockey. I don't, I don't want to have a season ticket sitting on the bench for the Leafs. I'm going to play in the NHL sometime. I knew by that time that I was good enough to compete with these guys. I didn't know how good, but I knew that I could compete. So I said to him, I'm not developing. And that's what I tell young kids today. Don't be in a hurry to get to that next level unless you're able to play at that next level and get ice time and be in the lineup and contribute to that team. Go down a level, be a, be a stud, yeah. Be a player, be on the power play and work your way up to. So when you do get to the big team, you got a line and you're playing every second shift. That's what you need to do. So, so I, that's how I ended up coming down to Tulsa the first time, because I said, I'm, I don't want to play in Toronto. I'll tell you that that's a whole different story. Yeah. But uh, now I'm, I'm in, I get traded from Toronto to, to Detroit. I'm just, again, I don't even know anybody even knows I'm in the NHL. I don't know how I got involved in that trade because it was a big trade. Uh, Norm Ullman was a big player for Detroit. Uh, Paul Henderson was the, was another big player for, for Detroit. They, and I think the other guy's name was uh, Floyd Smith got traded to Toronto. And the other big guy, the big trade was Frank Mahovlich for Norm Ullman. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm kind of a throw-in guy. A lot of times they have little trades and they say, okay, well, let's add one more guy. Who told you of the trade? Pardon? Who told you? Well, I, I, uh, that's a funny story too. I, I'm playing for Toronto 
and they're not telling me to get an apartment you know so i'm staying i'm staying in a hotel a couple of blocks down from maple leaf gardens walk into the rink in the morning practicing and and back then a lot of the the veteran guys weren't that happy that there was young guys coming up because we were going to take somebody's place we were going to knock somebody out of the lineup and all of a sudden so so we're kind of on our own a little bit i mean they weren't mean to us but you know it wasn't like hey welcome to the team (laughs) kind of thing so i'm totally on my own and back in those days you had to wear a shirt and tie just to practice like like if if you were if you were doing anything you were going on a plane you were going on a road trip you were doing anything with the team you had to have a shirt and tie. i I only had one shirt and tie i had to buy one to, to but i never had a sports coat and i had this thing on for like a month so i took it to the i i took it to the uh the laundromat in the evening and i said can you promise me that you're going to have this ready in the morning they said oh yeah we'll have it right so i go in the morning because i can't go to the rink without a shirt and tie on it's not ready so i got a ski jacket from western canada and i've got this thing up here to and i'm trying to sneak into the dressing room and the coach grabs me by the jacket and he says where's your shirt and tie he says i'm finding you five hundred dollars Five hundred dollars. Oh, like <laughs> okay. So I go, th- I go through practice, and all of a sudden, uh, all the the whole Maple Leaf Gardens is filled with media. There's cameras everywhere and everything, and I'm thinking, wow, wonder what's going on. So I go back off the ice. I I usually stayed on the ice extra with the younger guys after practice. I go off the ice. And, and a guy grabs me and says, what do you think about the trade? And I said, well, who got traded? I said, you did. Wow. <laughs> so that's when you found out. That's when I found out. So I jump on a plane with, with Frank and, and Pete Stemkowski was a, ended up being my roommate. He was a great guy. And now I'm, I'm with these guys, you know, Frank is talking to me and Peter's talking to me and, and uh, we meet the team in New York. So we're in, uh, Plaza Hotel, downtown New York. You know, I'm looking around. They've got the uh, Empire State Building. And, you know, I, 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 when I left Calgary, I, I was the first guy to wear cowboy boots in, in Toronto. You know, the, the, the West was, was the West, and the East was different. Right. So, so I'm looking around, and, and we're in the, in the lobby of the hotel, and uh, uh, the general manager comes up. His name is Baz Bastine. And he comes up and he says, Frank, how are you? And he says, Peter, how are you? And he came to me and he says, Norm, how are you doing? And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't even know my name. I, said, I just got <laughs> traded to this team. <laughs> so that was kind of, when I was in Detroit, that was my nickname. Peter called me Norm all the time. So anyhow, so anyhow, uh, we went that night to Madison Square Gardens. Now, that again is a, we walked to the rink, yeah. just down down to the rink through Times Square and the whole deal. And, you know, and my eyes are just bugging out. And we get to Madison Square Gardens. The, the rink is on the third floor. 
So you got to go up a big elevator and, and you walk into Madison Square Gardens and there it is. So I walk into the dressing room and they've got a, a chalkboard up in the up in the dressing room and they got they they always put the lines who's playing with who and and what goalie's starting and all that stuff. And I'm playing center with Frank Mahovlich and Gordy Howe. That's my line. Gordy was my room was my was my idol growing up as a kid. Let's go back to when I was 16, before I went to London, before anything was happening and I was still playing junior in Calgary. Gordy Howe was working for a company called Easton or uh, Eaton's uh, for the sporting department. He came into Calgary to sign autographs and, and do some stuff. So he was in the basement of Eaton's and every hockey kid in, Can in, in Calgary was there lined up to get his autograph. There had to be 3,000 kids. So I sat over in the corner. I never got in the line. I sat over in the corner and I, I just watched him sign autographs. And, you know, there's Gordy Howe. Wow. Anyhow, I sat there for three hours while he signed autographs. And now the line was starting to get down. So I got into the line. There was about 10 minutes left of people because they cut off the line. And I got up to the table and I couldn't talk. And I left and I never got an autograph. So now I'm in Madison Square Gardens. He's sitting beside me in the dressing room. And I'm playing for the Detroit Red Wings. I got a Red Wing jersey on and I'm looking around the room and there's Alex Del Vecchio and Bobby Bond and, and Gary Bergman and uh, uh, Terry Sawchuk was in goal. And I mean, it was it was all Hall of Fame guys. So I'm kind of looking around and I'm go out for warm up skate around and warm up and there's fans everywhere and they're pounding on the glass and you know you go into these buildings and it's it's pretty hairy anyhow we go back out now the coach comes in does his little deal and says okay you guys are starting starting the game which means that we go to the blue line each team and they play the national anthem and we start the game so i'm standing at center ice now once you get into the NHL, you don't buy sticks off the rack anymore. You've got a you've got a stick with your name on it. Instead of saying left five or left six or you know, it says Unger. Yeah. And I look down and I'm standing national anthem in Madison Square Gardens. I look to the, my right, Gordy's there. Look to my left, there's Frank Mahovlich. I look down at my stick. It's got my name on it. And I said to myself, okay. There's a net down there and there's a net down there. And this ice kind of looks the same as we've been playing on wherever we were playing. There's a blue line, there's a red line, there's a puck. I can play hockey. So I'm not gonna let this affect me one bit. I'm just gonna play. I may not stay here, I may not last, but I'm gonna play as hard as I can so that I can have the same experience every time I, I go to a hockey game. And that was, my mentality for playing the game it was no different game. Puck was the same size and that was the same size. The goalies were the same thing. And we, and I just played and it, it never changed. So I was lucky to have that, that, uh, that was instilled with me, with my father, with the confidence that he gave me and the love that, that my parents gave me as a kid. Uh, I was, I never questioned my ability. I, it was the same as going to Toronto. Was I good enough to play with these guys? Well, let's find out. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to not find out. 
if I can't play, well, then I'll pack my stuff up and go home. So that's that's where my whole mindset about the NHL changed because the NHL is no different than playing in the American League or the Central Hockey League or the East Coast League. Uh, the only difference is that I got a chance to, to do it. There's where, where the rubber crosses the road. You might only get one chance. Yeah. My chance might have been that first shift. And they said, ah, we got to get somebody else in there. But I competed. So did you ever tell Gordy the story? That's oh, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure he was like, oh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, no, Gordy was a great guy. He became a really good friend. Uh, you know, he, the guys in Detroit were totally different. The dressing room in Detroit was totally different than the atmosphere of the, the dressing room in Toronto Maple Leafs. And it was all because of Gordy and Alex and the players and the coach. Uh, Sid Abel was another uh, Hall of Fame guy. Uh, they created the atmosphere. Punch Imlach, the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, was a, a hard, tough guy. And that was the atmosphere in Toronto. It was totally different. If you had so... Uh... I'm sure you asked a million times for a Gordie Howe story. The, the story we got was from Cam Connor. Yeah. They were playing in Houston. And uh, Cam said he, him and Gordie Howe went out to the movies to see Slapshot when it came out. And Gordie didn't like it. Walked out, right? Yeah. Gordie yeah. didn't like it because right. he didn't like how, how it portrayed that. And, uh, you know, I mean, what a guy. I, mean, I never met him. Uh, but, you know, I remember him, even me growing up, he was playing in Hartford. Right. You know, right. towards the end of his career. I mean, what a guy. Uh, any favorite memories with Gordy? Well, you know what? Most of my memories have nothing to do with hockey. Right, right. Hockey's hockey. Yeah. Go and skate. Well, I'll tell you one memory of, of, of Gordy. Day of a game, when, when we fly in, what you do when there was 70 games, we've, we started off when there's 70 games. I think there's 84 now. So it, it tightened up the schedule a little bit and the distance of L.A. to New York and all the big teams. But we would have to be in the, in the city, if possible, the night before a game. We never, played, uh, we never played the very next night very often. But normally, if we had a, a day where we were, let's say we were, we were going from Detroit to, to, uh, to Boston, we would practice in, in Detroit in the morning, have a little practice, get our stuff ready, go for lunch, jump on the plane in the afternoon, arrive in Boston seven o'clock at night. We'd go to the hotel, stick our stuff in the room, and the whole team would go to Pier 4 for, yeah. for dinner. The whole team would be there. Here's a funny story. I get, once I get going with the stories, other things click in. So now I'm, I've only been with the team a short period of time. So we're sitting at the restaurant and the guys are all ordering beer. And the, the waiter comes up to me and he says, where's your ID? You got ID? And I said, nah, I forgot my wallet back at the hotel. Gordy's sitting beside me. Gordy says, get the manager. So he calls the manager over and he says, uh, he's okay. He's, and the manager says, okay, Gordy, if, if, if you're vouching for him, we'll, we'll, that's okay. So he 
calls the, the girl over again to, to, do, to do the drinks. And he says, okay, what do you want? And I says, I'll have a Coke. <laughs> True story. True story. True story. I've never had a beer, honestly. Wow. I, so I, I grew up in a home with no alcohol. And I also, also uh, I grew up in a Christian home that had something to do with it. But I wasn't going to do anything to my body that wasn't going to make me a better player. Did they used to smoke cigarettes too before games? Oh, yeah. Some, oh, Guy Lafleur smoked two packs a day. Two packs a day yeah. and plays like Guy Lafleur yeah. did? But, but that, that's the thing I'm talking about. I wasn't going to do any of that stuff if it wasn't going to make me a better player. So I never drank. But don't you, don't you owe um, Omen some royalties or something with your rookie card? Don't, oh, yeah. That's, that's, my, uh, that's only my head. They stuck my head on his body. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. It's not even your body right. on the card, right? Because I never played. I never played with brown gloves. That's when the goalies all had brown pads and, and brown gloves and all that stuff. Is that how you noticed it wasn't you, your body? Or? I knew it wasn't me because my neck's longer than that. They just stuck my head on this guy's. It's like early Photoshop. Yeah. Yeah. Probably very early. Too. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Detroit. Uh, two stories. You know, the famous, you know, uh, um, Andrew, you may not know this, but, um, you know, they had another, the coaches were hardcore and right, that's right. going to be a reoccurring scene right. here. We're talking about like Gary, he has, you know, it's coach Harkness that comes in players, uh, if things don't go well. The guy wants Gary to have his hair cut a certain length. The players kind of revolt in the end. I think that it was darkness of Harkness or the yeah. period of time darkness like that. Darkness. But the training camps, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, they weren't, a week or a few days like they are now training camp in the nhl was six weeks six weeks yeah. now you always kept yourself in good shape did some of the other players keep themselves in good shapes well that's why they had training camp for six weeks <laughs> they couldn't hung over because sure. because alcohol was part of the game right. at that time uh guys would come to training camp probably 10 pounds overweight maybe i can't you know i'll go back to, i don't remember this in detroit but bobby plager who i played with in in uh, st louis he he would wear a gar he would put a garbage bag on cut the hole in the head and put a garbage bag on so he would sweat <laughs> but i'll tell you the the training camps with detroit Again, Detroit was a different breed yeah. because Gordy and Alex and those guys were kind of running the show. So our training camp was in Port Huron where I bought my D28. I went to training camp and I'm first for the first year. The first, I, I had played 15 games a year before when on the trading deadline and I'd scored five goals and 15 assists playing with Gordy and, and Frank. So when I came to the team, my first training camp with Detroit, I was already on the team pretty well. I so came to 68. Yeah, 68. I came to the dressing room and number seven was hanging up in the dressing room. Back then, numbers were you didn't just get number seven. Yeah. You, you got a, a different number and you earned that because Bobby Hall had nine, Gordy had nine, you know, players didn't wear those numbers unless they were they were 
represented by a top-notch guy. So I came to training camp and I was in top shape. I spend the summers in, in Banff, Alberta, where my hockey school was, climbing mountains and riding bikes and hiking. And, you know, again, I didn't have to worry about being out of shape because I never drank, never drank in the summer either. Uh, and I was in pretty good shape. So that training camp, I came to the, the hotel where we were staying and I'm sitting in the lobby watching these guys come in. I came a little bit early. And everybody's carrying golf clubs. And I'm thinking, I thought this was a hockey training camp. Everybody had golf clubs. So, so we go there. The Toronto Maple Leaf training camp was skate in the morning, lunch, scrimmage in the afternoon, gym. So you were working out all day. Red Wings training camp was skate in the morning, have lunch, go to the golf course, <laughs> and then go for supper. So those six weeks training camps that I went to were the greatest holidays I've ever been on in my life. Because you're working. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I, we're doing, I'm in, I'm in the first couple of days practice, and, and a lot of the, the conditioning, the cardio was just skating. Down and back, down and back, down and back. Referee, the the coach would just blow the whistle, and and you'd have to skate all the way down and back as hard as you can. So, and there's a couple of different lines. So they had three different lines. So so five guys would go at a time, and then five guys. So I'm in a line with with Alex Del Vecchio, the captain of the team, Gordy, some of the older guys, and I'm just flying back and forth, and Alex came over to me, called me over and he says, stay with the pack. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, don't make us look bad. He says, we're, we're getting into shape. He says, I know you're in shape. Just skate with us. So I said, okay. So now, now I'm going to training camp. I'm doing training camp and I'm not even sweating. <laughs> so the fourth day, the fourth day, Lefty Wilson was the trainer. He comes in and he says, uh, coach wants to see you. Okay. So I go in the dressing room and my, my jersey's laying on, on the table. And he says, why isn't there any sweat on this thing? And I said, well, Alex told me to stay with the pack. <laughs> so, so what I started doing, I never wore underwear underneath. I just wore my, my hockey equipment, bare skin and, and my jersey. What I started doing is dumping water on myself. So my jersey was wet and they were happy because my jersey was wet. So it was fun. My heart rate, I think back then was 42. So, I mean, it was, it was like a, so I'd go for lunch and go golfing. And so it, it was, it was a great holiday. Anyhow, totally different than today. So. We're in the playoffs now with the NHL. You played a lot in the playoffs. I believe you had like six to eight different appearances in different series. But you ended up playing, I believe, your first series during your third year with Detroit. So I'm curious, kind of a two-part question. Did you ever prepare differently for playoff games? And how truly different does the game environment change when it comes to playoff time? Is it a couch potato that didn't play competitive hockey? Well, it, it's, it's a totally different mindset. But let me, as you 
it's no different than growing up. You're learning lessons all the way along. I'm now playing in Detroit, my second year. This is the year I scored 42 goals. So I'm leading the team in goals and the whole deal. Now I'm a player. You know, I'm doing interviews ahead of Gordy kind of thing. So that year, all six teams, that was the old original six teams, there was four points separating top from bottom. we ended up playing the Rangers in the playoffs. And at that time, if you were tied with a team, it was goals four. So it got to the end of the season where, where we're, we got the last weekend of the season. I've got 40 goals. Phil Esposito had 41 or something. We played New York. Saturday night in, in the Olympia in Detroit, and we beat them six to two. I got two goals, so that was 42. That put us in. The next game was against the Rangers again in Madison Square Gardens. We had to fly them, and it was a Sunday afternoon game. We played it at noon on NBC. After the game, the Red Wings hadn't made the playoffs for a long time before I got there. After the, after the game in, that we played the Rangers, the owner was in the dressing room and he had, he had champagne. And it was like we won the Stanley Cup. It's like, it's like what the guys, they, they learn from those type of experiences that you know they, they win their division and they won't touch the cup. They don't want to touch the cup until it, and, and their mindset doesn't change. So all of a sudden we're in the dressing room with champagne in the dressing room and all this stuff. And I, I drank some champagne. I, like told you, I never drank. So it didn't take me much more than a couple of swigs. They had, they brought those big bags of popcorn. You know, they, they used to have bags of popcorn. Yeah. They didn't pop them right at the game. They'd bring the big bags and yeah. they'd dump them in the machines. They brought the big bags. So there was popcorn everywhere. And uh, now we've got to get out of, we've got to get out of the dressing room. We've got to pack up. Trainers got to get everything organized because we're jumping on a plane and flying to New York. So we, we do that. The other different thing was when we walked out of the dressing room, the fans were right there. You could be right at the back door of the dressing room and kids are looking for autographs and all this stuff. Well, I'd had, I'd had enough champagne where I had no clue where I was. And I had put all my, I had filled my pockets up with this popcorn. So I had popcorn all in my pants and, and I'm throwing popcorn out. And I had my ring and my watch in my pocket oh, and I no. threw that out too. The crowd. I went to look for it on the plane and I couldn't find my ring or my watch. Anyhow, I I was hung over. Oh yeah. You know, I yeah. never drank. Gary Younger's a lightweight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so we go into we go into Madison Square Gardens 
Sunday afternoon, uh, the Rangers had to win, but they had to score nine goals because the, yeah. the goal difference. So we, every time the puck went in our end, they pulled their goalie. They were trying to get goals. So, and they were scoring and, and the other guys had had some champagne too. So basically the mindset had changed there. So we're in the playoffs. This game doesn't mean anything. And we're just going to go play. If I hadn't a drank and if I hadn't had a hangover, I could have, I could have scored seven goals that game because the net was always empty, but I was so tired and so burnt and I could have been ahead of Phil Esposito in the goal scoring wow. thing. Yeah. We ended up losing nine to four or something. I don't know how we got four so goals. Got goals. They got their nine goals, they put New York in the playoffs. Now oh. Montreal Canadians, Montreal Canadians are watching this game. They got to play uh, Chicago that night. I think the Bruins were already in. They had to play Chicago that night and they had to do the same thing. Well, <clears throat> they came to me after the first period and they said, then they do, they do interviews. They'll, they'll call you. They'll, they'll call the trainer and say, listen, we want to talk to Gordy or Gary or whatever. And you'd go do an interview and then you'd go back in the dressing room. So they called me in to do the interview and I, Montreal Canadians are watching this on TV and they said, what's going on with you guys? You guys look like you're dead out there. I said, I said, everybody's hammered <laughs> on, on national TV. Oh, I got in trouble for that. And then the Montreal Canadians were just fuming because if we'd have played the way we should, Rangers would have been out. They'd have been automatically in. Right. So they had to go into Boston and do the same thing, pull the goalie and back and forth. And they lost 10, nothing. So that was the first year that Montreal hadn't made the playoffs for a long time. So they changed the rules on the goals for and the goals against type thing. So that, that was a lesson for me because like I say, I could have won the scoring championship. Yeah. Really, I'm never drinking ever again. <laughs> that was it. So you spend your time over in the Greek Isles, get your hair blonde, the famous blonde hair that's going to make you famous. Yeah. And uh, Coach Harkness wants to cut a certain way. You're just like, hey, that ain't going to happen. And you end up in St. Louis. Right. Is, is that because... Well, there was a lot of things that happened. It was a big trade. It was a, it was a huge trade. Uh, he had all these college rules about what guys are supposed to do. And uh, it just didn't rub the guys the right way. You know, a lot of these guys like to smoke cigars. Uh, they weren't allowed to do that. Alex Delvecchio wasn't allowed to smoke cigars. It was, it was the era of of the leather sports coats coming in. We weren't allowed to wear leather because we would be on a motorcycle gang, you know, that kind of stuff. We couldn't wear the latest styles and he didn't want my hair. My hair was probably no longer than it is right now, but he didn't want it touching your ears. So, so all this stuff was going on. And basically what happened is subconsciously, the guys get so tired of this coach that they quit playing for him. So what happened was we're playing in Toronto, hockey night in Canada, Saturday night. This was, this would have been December. After the first period, it was six, nothing for Toronto. After the second period, it was nine, nothing. 
Alex and Gordy and Frank wouldn't go out for the third period. Really? We ended up getting beat on national TV, 13 nothing. So now we come out, the game started at eight o'clock then. So by the time we got out and jumped on a bus, we were on our way to Buffalo. It was midnight. So we get on the bus and there's not a peep. There's not a noise. We ride all the way to Buffalo, which is about three hours, three and a half hours. And now it's four o'clock in the morning. And I'm exhausted because, because those guys didn't play. I was playing every second shift in the third period. Anyhow, we get to Boston, we get to the Statler Hilton Hotel, and I'm thinking, I can't wait to get to bed. I'm walking off the bus, and a guy named Dale Rolfe grabs me by the shirt, and he says, put your luggage in the room. We're all going over to Sinatra's. It was a little bar that was open all night long in, in uh, Buffalo. It was actually where they invented buffalo chicken wings. So, oh, wow. so we put our bags in the thing, and we stomped down the alley. And the other thing I didn't like to do was sit at the bar. I, I don't mind going to a bar and sitting in a table and whatever, but the whole team was sitting at a bar. So I got to sit at the bar and I'm not drinking these guys. Nobody's talking. They're just drinking beer. I had three orders of chicken wings and about 15 Cokes. <laughs> no more champagne. And, 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 and these guys are, these guys are, are just sitting there fuming. And then they said, okay, we're going back to Gordy's room. So we all go back to Gordy's room. And I, if you remember some of these old hotels, there's not a lot of room in these hotels. So now we've got the whole Detroit Red Wings crammed into this, this one little hotel it's room. It's like 6 a.m., right? Yeah. It's well, now it's, yeah, it's 5.30, something like that. <laughs> and, and Bruce McGregor was the player rep, and Frank was the, the second guy. And they said, you know, we've got a piece of paper here. We're going to sign this piece of paper saying that we're not going to play this game tomorrow if this guy's coach. We want him out. Well, the rookie guys are saying, am I going to sign a piece of paper and, and put yeah. my name? I might not even be in the NHL if I sign that paper. You know, they might get me, get rid of me. So anyhow, we all signed the paper and Gordy said, hold it, hold it. Before we, we do anything with this paper, I've got to call Bruce Norris, uh, the owner of the team, and tell him, he said, I've been there for 18 years and I, you know, I like Detroit. And I don't want to get to a big hassle. So he called Bruce and told him what was going on. Bruce McGregor called uh, uh, Al Eagleson, who was the, the player rep. And both of them said, holy man, you can't cancel the game. It, it's millions of dollars. You can't, you know, you can't do that. I'll be there. He, he lived in Toronto. He said, we'll have a meeting in the morning. I said, okay. So he jumped on a, in his car and drove down from Toronto. Bruce, Bruce uh, Norris said to Gordy, I'll take care of it. So we played the game, went back to Detroit. We always flew early in the morning. I can remember it like yesterday. It was seven in the morning when we got to Detroit. They had the little, the little uh, uh, newspaper things where you put in a quarter and you, and you got the thing. And the headlines on the newspaper was, Ned Harkness fired his coach, but you couldn't see the bottom part because he had to open up the thing. Now general manager. So now he's general manager and he's got the paper and he's got all our names on this list of papers. So he just started trading guys. So this, did the owner and I think that one through it all? I thought maybe he was on Gordy's side. It kind of seemed like- I thought he was too, but he, he was a little, he wasn't 
he wasn't really tight with the team, the owner guy. Wow. So that's, that's kind of what happened. So I got thrown into that mix of, he hung on to me and hung on to me. And, and, uh, finally two weeks before I got traded everywhere, every city that I went into for the next month had a story about me getting traded to that city. I was going to Boston. I was going to Montreal. I was going somewhere because because it was all around the league. The Detroit was just clearing house. So I'm at practice, and the trainer says, "What do they call him? Deadhead or something?" Said Deadhead wants to see it. He's Ned Harkness, the general manager. In the I said, "Oh, my heart's just pounding. Where am I going to get traded to?" So I sit down, and he says, "You know," I said. Alex Del Vecchio is going to be retiring before long. And he says, as long as I'm here, you're my next captain. And I said, well, you've made me feel a lot better. I can sleep at night now because I love Detroit. And I did love Detroit. I'm ready to play. Two weeks later, he traded me. <laughs> did he tell you? Huh? Did he tell no, you? No, no. He never told so back told. then, how, how would players know about did you have an agent? Did they? Did they I never had an agent. Uh, Al Eagleson did some stuff for me, but I basically handled my own stuff. I'm trying to think how that one went down. I don't even remember. It sounds like they're always pretty cold, though. They just kind of like, yeah, pack your shit. And yeah. Kind of All of a sudden, you don't live here anymore. Yeah. You know, you just wake up in the morning, and I don't live here. I live somewhere else. So well, you 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 have the career of careers in St. Louis. And I know there was a sticky point there with Red going from St. Louis, you know, to Detroit. And he ends up back in St. Louis. But I know he was part of that trade. And some of the fans weren't happy about that. Well, it, it was the original trade. There wasn't the press that there was is nowadays. Right. So you knew your guys in your city. Most of the press was out east, Boston, New York, you know, all those places. I don't think people in St. Louis had any idea who I was. Maybe the hardcore hockey fans might have known, hey, this is a young rookie guy that's okay. But Red Berenson was their leader. He was the main guy on that team. He, was a, he had just scored six goals in a game and, uh, in Philadelphia, and, and he was the leader of the team. So to have them trade Red... For the people of St. Louis, that was devastating. Yeah. Who the heck is they, are they going to trade Red Berenson for? And I was that guy, so it wasn't an easy it wasn't an easy transition when I came into St. Louis. But again, had I come in and and been awful, right, I'd have been booed out of town and uh, left on the first train. Yes. But I again had to I was put in that situation where I had to perform. And I just played my game. I just said, I'm going to, I got, I became really good friends with the owners of the team. They were uh, Sid Solomon uh, Jr. And Sid Solomon III was his, his boy. They were really good friends. One of the things that I really like to do is, is uh, uh, I like the country. I like, I grew up a little bit on my own. My grandfather had a farm and I loved horses and these guys, had a big house in the city and they had a farm. So Mr. Solomon allowed, we went to Mr. Solomon 
there was five or six single guys on the team. And we went to Mr. Solomon and said, can we stay at the farm rather than stay in an apartment? It was about 40 miles from St. Louis. And he said, yeah, if, if you guys want to stay there, he had, he had houses all over the, the farm. There was a, so he said, if I offer it to you guys, I have to offer it to all the single guys. Anybody that's single can go out and stay at the farm. So about five of us went out and took them up on it. Two of us were farmers and the other three guys were getting tired of driving back and forth from going to the bar and going back. We were happy to be riding our horses and doing that stuff. So I got to be really good friends with Mr. Solomon. Then I ended up buying my own farm out in that area. So two years later, Mr. Solomon called me in and he said, uh, you know, we've I wanted to talk to you about it. We've got a chance to get Red back on the team. He said, what do you think about it? Because when you get traded for a guy, there's some animosity between each other. Okay. Kind of, you know, it's just kind of unwritten thing. And uh, I said, no, great. I said, I've heard stories about Red from the guys in the dressing room and all that stuff. I said, I'd be happy to have him come back in and play. So that's when he came back and played with us. And uh, I got to know him. And uh, again, a, another great guy that, that played the game. And that's how he that's how he came back in. So um, I want to bring you to 1972, and uh, Al Arbor gets clobbered on the head in Philadelphia. Oh. <laughs> so I invite all the listeners, especially the younger listeners, to uh, I don't even know what you would have to YouTube, but YouTube the uh, Philly fans and police department versus the St. Louis Blues. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to spoil the thunder, but uh, it's 1972, Philadelphia. And I'll let Gary take well, there, there's some, there were some huge rivalries in, in the NHL back then. You didn't see guys kneeling down at the, at the, at the red line and warm up talking to one of their buddies from the other team that got traded the, the week before kind of thing. Right. The, 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 when I played and, and it, it, it softened up a little bit, but when I first went there, if you ever talked to somebody on the other team, your teammates would just give it to you. So anyhow, when you went into Philly, when we went into Philly, they had put these tough teams together. The glass used to be about this high. So when we went to warm up, when we warmed up, we came back and stood at the, at the, at the blue line and then passed each other and went in and shot. We had different drills that we did. You had to stand that far away from the glass because they had these big rubber chickens I don't know if you've probably never seen them, but it's a big rubber chicken. Yeah. <laughs> they grabbed by the, and you, they would whack you on the, on the head as you skated by. Yes. So you couldn't skate by on the boards. You had to stay about two feet outside because, so they couldn't whack you with these rubber chickens. So there was already that animosity of, of the team. So now we're playing Philly and there's always, and we had a pretty tough team too. We, Again, we didn't get publicity about it because we were in the Midwest and Philly was on the East Coast and they got, you know, this big tough team. Anyhow, uh, it was always a tough game to go in and play. You know, there was always fights. There was always brawls. There was always things going on. I'm taking the face off. There's, the score is 1-1. And it's after the, it's the second period. So there's, there's about 30 seconds left to go in the second period. And the score is 1-1, which is really good for us because going into Philly was a tough, 
a tough point to get. You know, they they we didn't win too many games in Philly. I'm taking the face off with Bobby Clark in our end. And it's before they had now they've got they've got marks in the ice where the centermen have to put their feet and they have to line up straight. He was always cheating. He was cheating on the draw. So I said to the referee, referee says, get your stick down. I said, I'm not putting my stick down till he does. I said, I'm not, he's cheating and you're bugging me. So I'm arguing with the linesman and the referee skates down. He says, what's going on here? I said, I'm not lining up with this guy because he's cheating on the draw. And this is an important face up. He says, get in there. I'm going to give you a penalty. So I, I step in and now I, the referee's back at the blue line. I turned to my winger and said, okay, get on this side. As I turned to talk to him, he drops the puck. I'm not even ready. The puck goes back to their point, goes across to the point, boom, top shelf. They score 10 seconds left to go. Now it's two to one for them. So I'm burning hot. I'm mad. It was in the spectrum. Our, our uh, benches were right here, and we walked up the stairs to go to our dressing room for, in the spectrum. I storm off the ice, go into the dressing room. The dressing room's a big circular dressing room, and I'm sitting right here where I can see the door. I throw my stick and gloves down, and I'm sitting in the dressing room, and all of a sudden I look around, and there's no, I'm, I'm the only one in the dressing room. And I hear this big roar. So I come out and now I'm, it's, it's up there. So I'm standing, looking down on the ice and I'm figuring there's a brawl going on, but I can't see anybody. All I see is Al Arbor staggering around at center ice. He's got his jacket tore off. His tie is gone. He's got a gray t-shirt on and there's blood everywhere. And he's half whacked walking around the ice. So I come storming down the stairs and I'm looking around and all the guys that what had happened was Al had followed the referees off to the end of the ice where the Zamboni was right in the corner, right in the corner where the Zamboni was. And Al had been hit with a billy club. The cops in the cops in uh, in Philly didn't have guns. They had billy clubs. So so he got whacked in the head. And now I look down under the where the Zamboni is and these guys are going at him, the cops and, and, and the team guys. So I come flying down in there. Guy's got a billy club and he's getting ready to whack one of our guys. I come from behind and now I've got him by the neck. I've got the billy club around on his neck. And I'm underneath the, the where the Zamboni is as well. People were hanging down off the, off the, the side and the guy grabbed me by the hair and had me by the hair. And I got this cop. I ain't lifting going. This guy's not going to lift me. He's about 300 pounds, the guy that had me by the hair. And Bobby Plager came along and, and broke this guy's arm. So now this guy's got a broken arm. And, and those seats there were chairs, but they were all stuck together. And this guy's trying to throw chairs down on top of us, but he couldn't lift the whole roll. So all of a sudden, you know, we're pounding around, pounding around. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, somebody said, let's get out of here. So we all take off, go up to the dressing room and lock the door. So now we're sitting in, now we're sitting in the dressing room. And I'm again, sitting at the door and the washroom is up this way. 
So we're sitting there and they're pounding on the door and everybody said, no, we're not opening the door. We're not opening the door. We're not doing that. So, <laughs> so we're sitting there and uh, one of our, our big tough defensemen, he gets up slowly, walks up and I'm watching him. A lot of guys in the dressing room couldn't see what I was seeing. He walks up and I think he's going to turn left into the dressing room. He walks straight to the door, opens the door. There's a cop standing there. Boom! He and his glasses exploded, and he shut and locked the door again. And then he went and sat down. Wow. <laughs> now they're going nuts. Now they're going nuts. Oh. So they said, "Okay, we're canceling the game. Everything." Well, it happened to be that our owner was at the team at the game, Mr. Solomon, and he was friends with uh, Snyder. I think was the owner of the Philadelphia team. They got together, and. Uh, they decided we'd play the third period. So we played the third period. And then now it was time to leave the game. So now what they did was they came in and they, the, the videos that they had, they had certain number of, that they, of guys that they wanted to arrest. So they took, <laughs> they took uh, my, my roommate, Floyd Thompson, I think Bobby Plager, they, they took two or three guys I think Al Arbor went back the paddy wagon up to the back door where the Zamboni was and took those guys to jail. Now, now we have to go down to the same area and they had to pull our bus inside the rink because the people are all oh, sure. throwing beer bottles. They totally destroyed the bus, just threw beer bottles, broke out all the windows in the bus. So, so we got out of that. We all got fined, but uh, Mr. Solomon, the owner of the team, paid the fine. He was he was really upset. We had to go to Montreal. Meet the, the commissioner of the league was Clarence Campbell at that time, and we had to go to Montreal and meet with Clarence Campbell. There was like six of us that had to go, and we all got fined a couple thousand dollars apiece, and, and Mr. Solomon paid, paid for it. But it was a hairy night. Everybody bailed out of jail too. Well, they, 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 uh, Mr. Solomon bailed them out of jail that night. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So they were only there till about two in the morning. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so Boston always has the you know infamous O'Reilly in the stands, right. in the stands, yeah, or whatever. But this is like I've never heard of this. Before. Yeah, that sounds this, way worse. Oh. Well, it's because you only know Boston stuff. That's true. <laughs> well, and not only that, like I say, the, the media covers right. these. I feel like the media didn't really cover that. Yeah. So it's, and here's my, I'm going to take nine, Andrew, you take 10. Um, so coming, I grew up in Boston in the North Shore, so Bruins fan, and St. Louis Blues, except for my hockey cards, and of course, you know, Bobby Orr's famous, The Goal. Yeah. Um, St. Louis was always kind of like, you know, the Seals were in L.A., uh, just teams, even like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Kansas City Scouts. Right, know? yeah. Easy games. We didn't, but we didn't really, like, as fans or me growing up, didn't really know too much about those teams. So my question is this, is you're a, a, a legend in St. Louis. Um, what made St. Louis a great place to play? Well, it was the ownership and the city. The way they they marketed the team, uh, the way they treated the team, we we were treated like a family. And not that some of the other teams might have done that, but the owner was totally involved. 
you know, we'd have at the end of the season, they had a, uh, a huge big hotel called the Golden Strand on Miami Beach. They had a penthouse apartment. And at the end of the season, they took everybody in the organization, families, kids, uh, scouts, players to the Golden Strand for 10 days for wow. free. And every day they would have deep sea fishing would be one day and then Disney World the next day. And, and they paid for the whole thing. Was the whole organization was taken care of? Mr. Solomon was hooked up with the uh, the Democratic Party in in Jefferson City in in Missouri, uh, and he had connections. So, in his house in the city, he had a a movie theater in his house, and he would get movies that were going to be released in the spring, and he'd have them for just our team, and we'd go down and have a movie night and and you know it was it was that kind of a team we did a lot of stuff together uh and it was just and, and the fans somehow took off when when i when i first went there the people in the bottom tickets they were in fur coats and tuxedos and uh you know it was a it was a a, a night at the opera the building was jammed. It was 20,000 people. It was an old, old building. They had totally fixed it up. It was a neat old building, the St. Louis Arena. The acoustics in there were, were amazing. I saw uh, uh, Moody Blues and uh, uh, Beach Boys and all these different groups play in there. But when you came out of the dressing room, to we had to came out of the dressing room and then walked down a couple of stairs to get onto the ice. Every people weren't late coming to the games. They were there for warm up. When we came out, the people would all stand and the, the noise was so loud that you couldn't talk to somebody. You couldn't talk to your winger. You couldn't talk to the guy. And they were all singing uh, when the blues go marching in. Right. Right. You know? Right. Right. So it, it just was one of those things that caught on in the city. That was the thing to do. And it was jammed. And it, it took us two hours. It took me two hours to get out of the rink after the game because the kids would stay to sign autographs. I had to wear old suits because the kids had these magic markers and felt stuff. And, and you'd be in a, crowd with it and you'd go home and you'd have pen marks all over your clothes yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was really fun i mean we were part of the community we people knew who we were and the other thing is i didn't wear a helmet so if, if some football guy walks down the street in, in uh, broken arrow you wouldn't have a clue who that guy was right but we we played on television and we we did interviews and we were on the ice we were on the glass and people were pounding our face into the glass and we didn't have a helmet on so they everybody knew who we were so it was you couldn't go anywhere in st louis where where they didn't know who you were that's the end of part one interview with gary hunger join the lindroth hockey podcast next time for part two where gary has more entertaining stories from his nhl and coaching career and with the tulsa oilers catch us next time